This episode is brought to you by City on Fire by number one international bestseller Don Winslow. Stephen King has called Don Winslow one of America's greatest storytellers and Christian White has said that City on Fire is a masterpiece, wonderfully crafted, beautifully written and a propulsive, authentic page turner. It's already receiving rave reviews all around the world with Publisher Weekly, Library Journal, Kirkus and Booklist already giving it starred reviews, saying epic, stunning and brilliant. City on Fire will be released in Australia on the 4th of May, so pre-order your copy now. Hello everyone and welcome to The Regular, a Words and Nerds spin-off podcast with your host Nathan J. Phillips. I am a writer of speculative fiction, sometimes an editor, and always a fan of any book with a good story. Today I'm recording from Ngunnawal land, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging of the Ngunnawal people. Today our guest for the podcast is Alan Baxter. Alan is a multi-award winning author of horror, supernatural thrillers, and dark fantasy, liberally mixed with some crime, mystery, and noir. This is Horror calls him Australia's master of the literary darkness, and the Talking Scared podcast dubbed him the Lord of Weird Australia. He's also a martial arts expert, a whiskey-soaked swear monkey, and a dog lover. He creates dark, weird stories among dairy paddocks on the beautiful south coast of New South Wales, Australia, where he lives with his wife, child, hound, and some other animals. Find him online at www.alanbaxter.com.au, and you'll also find him spending far too much time on Twitter which I think a lot of us can relate to. Alan's latest release, The Fall, is a follow-up to the fantastically dark and twisted stories in The Gulp. Each contains five stories centred around the fictional New South Wales uh, south coast town of Gullpepper, or more uh, affectionately may not be the right word, uh, referred to by the locals and, and generally anyone else who's aware of it as The Gulp. And uh, to sum it up using the mantra that seems to be the drive of the two novels, weird stuff happens at The Gulp. And today we'll be discussing both of those stories, how they fit together, and really just a lot about dark fiction, horror, and why people are so drawn to it. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Thanks for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. You know, we've, I've been a fan of your work for a while, um, but basically ever since I saw, I think it was Hidden Dark, sorry, Hidden City and Devouring Dark came up on an Aurealis list that I was reading. And I was like, how have I missed this this author (laughs) for all this time to come? but those standalones, they're not your only books, certainly not your only style. You've got more books than I can count at the moment. Um, you've got the Alex Kane series, the Eli Carver series, several short story collections such as uh, Crow Shine and Surf Cold. And you've got the standalones as well. But we are here today to talk about a very exciting new one, the sequel, the follow-up to The Gulp, uh, or sorry, Tales from the Gulp, being The Fall, which is more Tales from the Gulp. Yeah. So did you want to give us a quick, uh, if you like, quick elevator pitch on what the idea of the gulp is because that itself is fascinating and how that ties into the new collection of the fall sure um okay so the gulp so in short um the gulp is the first book of tales from the gulp which is five long stories they sort of fall in that novella category just about novelette novella category and it's five stories all set in the isolated australian harbour town of Gulpepper that uh, locals refer to as the gulp because the place has a habit of swallowing people Um, And it's basically my excuse to explore all the best kinds of um, horror, you know, cosmic horror, body horror, mix up with crime and all that sort of stuff and weirdness, basically. And I can mix it all in with a very Australian small town vibe. But being a harbour town, I get to play a little bit with that sort of Innsmouth kind of vibe. Being isolated in Australia, I get to play with the isolationism and stuff as well. And also just general small town horror, like a lot of people have said, you know, one reviewer called it Derry Down Under and someone else said Max has found his Castle Rock and things like this, which is great because that's kind of the vibe I wanted. I wanted to create this weird town that is just a sandpit for me to play in as often as I want. Um, And with the Gulf, I wrote five stories that are all standalone stories within the book but they do interconnect characters and places crossover and they sort of come together in the last story. Um, but there's a lot left hanging and it was a bit of a, it was a bit audacious. I didn't really know if I was going to pull it off or how well it would resonate, but then it was really, it turned out to be really popular. I'm so pleased with how well received the goal was. So I then went ahead and wrote the fall, which is the one that comes out April this year. 
And that's five more stories. And again, it's five um, separate stories that each their own self-contained thing. They're all a little bit interconnected as well as interconnected with the five stories in the gulp. And the last story, it doesn't close everything. There's still a lot left open, but it basically makes a solid arc across the 10 stories. So it ends up being sort of a mosaic novel across 10 stories across two books. I was a bit terrified I wouldn't pull it off, but early reviews of the fall seem to indicate that I've done an okay job. So yeah, fingers crossed it all works. Yeah, I've seen some of those reviews and I think okay is probably short selling it a little bit, but um, <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's done really well so far. And um, one thing that you mentioned there that I found really interesting, and it, it certainly comes out in there, is that you've got different styles of horror in there so without going to too much detail because i don't want to put any spoilers for the gulp in there um especially considering some of the surprises that come up through there but you've got sort of that um organized crime side of things you've got um i don't think this is a spoiler because i think it's alluded to quite well but you know a sort of almost vampiric style story in there um You've got, as, as you said, the sort of almost eldritch cosmic horror type thing going on as well. Was that a challenge to pull all the different styles together uh, into a in, into what is essentially a single story? And um, yeah, how did you how did you find that process? Uh, I, I mean, it was a challenge, but it was also in some ways a relief. I've said I've said it many times. I never met a genre I didn't like, <laughs> um, and so I tend to mash a lot of the time a lot of what I write is basically sort of dark fiction it's usually weird supernatural sort of dark fiction horror but I always I always drag other genres in sort of kicking and screaming and mix things up I love to mix in mystery and crime and noir as well as a fantasy as well as horror as well as whatever Um, and so sometimes if you're writing a single story even in a novel length like something like Devouring Dark is very much a sort of supernatural crime novel. Um, Grim noir, I believe. Yeah, yeah, tr- probably true. That's right, yeah. Um, and it's, it's tricky then sometimes to sort of figure out where you can go with things. And I, I am a believer in just sort of throwing everything at a story. I, somebody, years and years ago, one of, my, one of the early workshops I went to when I was first starting out writing, I can't even remember who said it actually, which is terrible, isn't it? Um, but whoever it was said to paraphrase basically ideas are not the problem you're never going to run out of ideas Mm. you will run out of time to do all the things with the ideas that you want so when you're writing a book just throw every idea you've got at it because by the time you get around to the next book you're going to have a whole bunch of new ideas Um, and so it was this it was this sort of principle if you like of of never thinking oh I need to save that idea for something else Um, so for me when I'm writing if there's cool stuff in mind and it fits the story bang it goes in Um, and so when I was writing when I came up with the concept of writing the goal part of the idea was like well look I can explore all these different things I can write one story that's kind of sort of an abduction thriller I can write another story that's just proper weird body horror I can write another one that plays like you said it's sort of vampire tropes it gets I kind of play around with the ideas with that I can do another story that's crime focused um and the thing that ties them all together is the location and the characters that sometimes criss and cross over. Um, so in some ways it was tricky to figure out, okay, which kind of trope am I going to play with, with each story? Because when I came up with the idea for the goal, I had two stories in mind. I, for a long time, I'd wanted to create this place and I wasn't sure how much of a market there was for weird, very Australian horror. Um, but then a couple of years ago, I wrote The Rue and that kind of went ballistic and everybody was loving Australian yeah, horror. And it was like, well, shit, OK, maybe, maybe this will work. Maybe people would be interested in my weird stories from a strange, isolated Australian harbour town. Um, and this was during the start of the pandemic. And with lots of stuff going on, trying to figure out how to shift my Kung Fu school into online classes and all that sort of stuff. I couldn't really hold big novel projects in my head. So I was like, I'm just going to write these pepper stories um and i had two in mind and then i then had to go right well if i'm going to make this as a book I'm, it'll be five stories is about the length of a book because you know 15 20k sort of words per story makes it about novel length and so then i had to decide okay so which stories am i going to write and ha- which kind of tropes am i going to lean into um and it all just kind of, it kind of came together naturally i think because it was in my head for so long 
um, and I kept putting it off for other projects. By the time I finally decided to do it, it was all just backed up in there, ready to come through. And then the same with the fall, when I was sitting there thinking about, well, if this does well and I get to write another set of stories, the idea was always to try to make it 10 stories in a way a bit like um, a Netflix sort of limited series or something like a 10 episode series. So it's like an anthology series, but there is an arc that goes right across all 10. Um, like love death and robots sort of style yeah yeah that's it only even more connected in a way because of the location or something you know so and so rather than telling one story it's telling loads of stories but by the end of it you realize it's also told one bigger story um so by the time I realized the gulp was doing well enough that yeah I should go ahead and write the fall and because of some other things that sort of have cropped up over the course of months that sort of change focus a little bit and I'm being cagey because there's some things I'm not I can't talk about um which is always nice to know and yeah and who knows whether anything will ever happen it might just never occur but equally it might um so it made me juggle things around and then when I started writing the fall the same thing kind of happened these ideas dropped in I had I had well I guess I had three stories really by the time I started the fall because I had a couple in mind and I knew what I wanted to do with the last story even though I had no idea how I was going to do it but then by the time I started writing it, it all started sort of dropping into place. And I think my subconscious has been, uh, deserves a holiday over the last couple of years, the way it's put this stuff together in my hind brain and it's all sort of poured out. And, and I'm, I'm really pleased with it. And I'm very pleased that the early reviews of The Fall are positive because, yeah, I, it was a tricky thing to pull off and it looked like maybe I did. So. Yeah, like I said, I see some of those reviews and it sounds like it's, uh, and I'm certainly looking forward to uh, getting into it myself. But when you were going through that, noting that you mentioned before that you weren't really sure about the goal, how that would go. Uh, and then you you sort of tried it, it, it and it's worked. Uh, and then moving on to the fall, did that give a bit of a, a bit more, uh, I guess, a bit more of an informed approach or did you just go with the same again? I know you've spoken a little bit about that, but um, just sort of wondering if you, a little bit more secure or structured in the way that you put together the fall I, I sort of did because like I said when I first conceived of it I wrote five that could have just been five if it had ended like that it would have been okay even though there was clearly a lot more stories to tell there was still a certain amount of closure across that book um, but I always had it in mind to be across at least two volumes because the last story in the fall is the story that's called the fall um, and regardless of anything else, when I started with the goal, I kind of knew more or less the shape of how things would all shake down in the fall, because even though I had no idea of the individual stories or necessarily characters or how things would quite link together, I knew what sort of direction I was going with um, and I'm trying to sort of explain this without spoilers, yeah, no, uh, but just to basically I kind of had an idea of how the last story would sort of shake down. So when the gulp did well and I started writing the fall, I sort of knew where I was going. And so I had these stories I needed to write and a few things I wanted to drop in and a few threads I wanted to drag up from the gulp and tie, tie into the new stories in the fall. But I guess I was always aiming for that final story. So when I wrote the gulp, um, the final story in that, I, I sort of knew what I was going to do, but that story sort of told itself when I got there um, because I wasn't quite sure how much I was going to tie together. And it, to be honest, it was in writing that story. It's called Rockfisher, the last story in the, yep. in the gulp. I think it was in writing that story that I was like, okay, no, this is definitely, I'm definitely able to expand this out and make it 10 because I could have finished and made a much bigger finish with a longer story in the gulp and with that last story but it actually worked better to sort of leave that little bit open-ended leading into something bigger going on so yeah yeah that last story that was the longest in the gulp was it as well no actually it was the shortest oh shortest okay yeah I (laughs) I know I find this really interesting right because I was really unsure like how people would take things and the stories are some of the stories are quite different to each other and it's like which which stories would be people's favorite and the second and fourth story which is mother in bloom and 48 to go those two in the gulp this is those two stories by far more than any others were 
people like, oh, I, you know, these were all great, but if I had to pick a favorite, it would usually be one or other of, of those two. But it's really interesting how many people have said exactly what you just said, that the, the longest story at the end, this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, actually, that's, that's the shortest story by a significant amount. The first four stories are like between 15 and 20K and that last one in terms of words. And that last one, I think, is only like 12,000 words. So. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. I think the um, my issue was more because I'm reading it on my phone. So depending on what my Zoom is, tells me how many pages there are to go. <laughs> so I must have zoomed in more on that one as the eyes got more, uh, <laughs> yeah, more you tired. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and look, I can 100% say that number two was my favourite, hands down. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, it's always one of, it's always two it's always one of the two. <laughs> and if I had to pick a second, I have to admit it would be number four. Okay. Um, and yeah, actually, number two was interesting because um, my, my partner's just started writing and she's written um, actually similar stuff to yourself. So I've, I've, I've referred her to a few of uh, the things that you've done. And she wrote something that sort of, shook herself a little bit and she's like i'm i'm not sure i should be writing this so you know this is making me uncomfortable as i write it uh, so i said look just go read alan's stuff you'll be disturbed by someone else instead and then you'll be fine you come back to yours and realize it's <laughs> yeah, not so yeah. bad. um and i mean that as a compliment of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I absolutely agree if she's if she's uncomfortable writing it then it's good stuff yeah because and it really is like i know yeah. i'm biased but um it's it's one of those things where i look at it and go i've been trying to get my my hand in writing for about 10 years now trying to get you know the craft down pat um she's just come in the last six months and you know she's way above anything i can do so oh, but wow. again i'm cool. biased and i'm not here to, to plug you know um uh Ros's future work uh i'll get back to your stuff um <laughs> but one, one thing about horror that i always find interesting is people do talk about putting down a book and not being able to sleep or not reading it at night or being disturbed by it um what is it you think about these things that that bring writers or bring readers, excuse me, sorry, to books that actively make them uncomfortable, aim to make them uncomfortable, and they know will make them uncomfortable, and they keep coming back? Yeah, yeah. Well, this this is this is the eternal question. Yeah. It, it these two things uh, always crop up, which basically boils down to what is horror, mm. and why the hell do people read it? Yeah. Um, and so, and yeah, you know, they're both really difficult questions to answer because they they're both so different for different people. Um, any anything that's disturbing or uncomfortable in any way tends to be horror. Mm. Um, and a lot of the time, see, for me, horror is a genre of honesty. Like there's um, th this comes out quite often when I talk about these sorts of things and it's difficult not to sound nihilistic because I'm not, you know, I mean, the world is a mess and people are terrible a lot of the time, but I still love life. I love showing my kid the world and watching, you know, him grow up and see things and be excited by things and all of that. So, you know, I'm not nihilistically minded, but equally we're all on the same journey with the same destination. A lot of the time there aren't happy endings. A lot of the time terrible things happen to good people and horrible people live to a ripe old age and never pay the consequences for the awful trauma they cause. Um, these are just truths. Um, so while a lot of the time storytelling is an escape from that, um, and we like love stories and happy endings and whatever, because it you know helps us to see the, the good in humanity, that's great. For me as well, horror is honest in as much as it opens up those truths. Like the, the, that famous G.K. Chesterton quote that um, people don't read about dragons to know that dragons are real. They know dragons are real. They read about dragons to know the dragons can be beaten. Um, and that's the idea for sort of the, the fantasy element of things. But when you read horror, you have to admit that, well, we read horror to remind ourselves that sometimes the dragons aren't beaten or sometimes if they are beaten, it's not without great cost and not everybody survives the vanquishing of the dragon. And so a lot of the time, I think we read horror in order to confront those truths and to have that catharsis of, um, of sort of understanding that what you're up against and what costs might be. And also, I think the more of a state the world is in, the more people read horror. And I think part of that is like, well, everything's awful, but it, look, it could be worse. <laughs> you know, the, the world's awesome. terrible and there's an awful disease causing everybody all kinds of grief, but at least elder gods aren't coming to consume everything in darkness. So, you know, it's like, I think there is a little bit of, of that in it as well. 
And apart from anything else, it's just for the same reason that people get on roller coasters and just get off at the other end going, oh, my God, that felt awful. That was amazing. Let's do it again. Um, Because it does feel, it does create a lot of emotion, but you are also safe because it's a story. You know you're reading a book and then you can put it down and it might live on, and hopefully it does. It's the best compliment I can get. It's so, oh, my God, I couldn't stop thinking about it or I shouldn't have read that before I went to bed and everything. It's like, sweet, you know. Yeah. But even then, they know that it's a fiction. And so it's a way to get that thrill without actually, you know, yeah. It's like if you want to learn about fighting, you can go down the pub and get in a fight or you can read about someone else having a punch on. And, you know, it's a bit like that. Yeah. Sort of like living vicariously through the fiction. Um, mm, yeah. yeah. And look, I, I, I suppose I, too, I think. Yeah. I think that um, what you're saying there about it, experiencing all those things and processing them in a safe place of fiction. Mm is a real one as well. That's um, something that I know Danny V who uh, hosts the main podcast. And I think you've um, spoken to her previously on, yeah, uh, have, uh, yeah. on a book launch. I think it was. Um, yeah. We had a great conversation where I had to send a quick message. Say, oh, I've just locked in Alan Baxter for an interview. I hope that you haven't as well. We haven't doubled up there. <laughs> That's all good. Um, but, <laughs> That's uh, good. <laughs> yeah. It was a bit of a panic there, but um, I mean, not that we wouldn't have just both had you on because you know, why not? Um, why not? There's yeah. plenty of me to go around. <laughs> but um yeah, so something that Danny often talks about with crime is that it's it's a way to process and understand what happens in the world through a safe place mm. and a way to understand mm. and process uh, trauma at times. Um, and it's also something like uh, like what it, it helps you process in your mind what would you do when bad things happen? Yeah. Because uh, a lot of the time there are studies that have shown that people who read and watch horror respond much better to crisis and trauma. Because okay. people who always live their life without confronting crisis and trauma, when it happens, it's a massive shock. Yeah. But if you've lived vicariously through that by reading horror and you and crime and stuff like that, and so you've read when horrible things happen, you've read when people are in a terrible state, and you've kind of experienced that through others' eyes in fiction, when it actually happens for real, there's a certain part of you that goes, oh, cracky, okay, I've seen this before, even though you haven't seen it for real, but you, your brain has that little moment of understanding. It's like, okay, we can deal with this. I've read about other people dealing with this. I'm going to deal with this too. Then It's really interesting the way that um, I wish I could remember something I was reading not that long ago, last year sometime, where there was this, there was a big study done and it was basically coming down to that. People that do consume a lot of dark media in terms of horror and crime are much better at dealing with um, shock and trauma in the real world. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's genuine. It's survival prep. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting to see uh, that as well, because there's a lot of similar studies and about just fiction in general and how it makes people more empathetic, you know, empathetic and mm, just how, absolutely. yeah, I always find it interesting about how that um, the, the fiction of the world has a real impact on the world uh, and, you know, I could go off on another, you know, tangent about that one, but... Um, well, we understand the world through stories. We always have. Since the earliest days, people have been passing on lessons by telling stories around a campfire, and we're still doing it. Yeah. Like, you know, fairy stories are warnings for kids. They always have been. Like, that, that's what we do, you know. The, I can't remember, again, that quote, that fiction is is the lie or the, the lie that tells the truth or the truth yeah. hidden in the lie. It, it, it's that principle at work, you know, that we, we process and understand the world through stories. Uh, yeah i think it was uh i, I don't know if there was the, the original but it was uh quoted in v for vendetta something about you know i think it was politicians telling lies to hide so telling the truth to hide lies and artists telling uh lies to t- yes. uh, telling lies to express truth those are the truth that's right something along yes. those lines something far more eloquent than that but uh but yeah but it's a true it's, it's an absolute truism yeah and yeah. and the other one i really like is um that game and quote again is that's from the Sandman. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but basically things not things need not have actually happened to be true is another thing. So you know, like you can uh, it can be a true thing that informs how you live your life, even though it didn't actually happen, but it was a way that you kind of processed. Yeah, yeah, oh, fun times. Yeah. So one of the the other questions is. With with the gulp and the fall, they're uh, creating a little bit of this Baxter verse that's um that's going on. Um, are they <laughs> <I like> actually? <laughs> Sorry, had had to throw the Baxter verse in there somewhere. Um, but do they tie into your other stories at all? I mean, some of them they theoretically could, but it's a, 
it's a big jump between could because they sit in opposite sides of the world in a real world based thing or mm. whether or not that's an intentional thing um well a little bit of both um i'm always happy for people to bring any interpretation to a story if there's nothing sort of over contradicting it um but equally um i have been deliberately sort of setting things nearby as well so basically the gold peppers so there's two it's set on the fictional section of the south coast of new south wales and there's two main towns there's endon and then a main road that runs to moncton and halfway down that road if you turn off you can go to Goldpepper, but nobody does because it's horrible there and everybody advises you go straight through. And there's one road in, one road out. That's yeah. that's the goal. And I was not um, 100% accurate, but my interpretation of that was Kaima on a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who really knows Kaima will recognise the street layout of the gulp to some degree because rather than reinvent the wheel, I did kind of use the general street. Oh, I'm, I'm glad that's where I went. Kayama. Yeah, so because uh, I live myself near Kaima. So... Um, yeah, so when it came to this, this, the general streets, it, it is very similar in look, but it's it's set further south down the coast. It's a lot more isolated and you stay on the highway or you take this other road and halfway down this other road, you go to the cop. Um, but so I did that sort of to locate it, but I also did that deliberately because it expands the universe of the gulp a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the gulp is truly messed up, but yeah. then Endon and Moncton either side are these bigger south coast, so south coast towns that are more bustling, more connected or whatever, but can still play into that little bit of sort of weirdness. Um, and there's a story in my collection, Served Cold, there's a story called Exquisite about uh, a guy who provides a very specific service. I won't go into it without spoiling the story. That story was written long before any of the goal. And then I wrote, I was commissioned to write a story for an anthology. Um, John F.D. Taff edited an anthology called The Bad Book. Um, and I decided to revisit that character and write another story with that character. And at that point, I also set that story in Moncton deliberately. So in the first time, it, well, it could have been just anywhere. It was just a town somewhere. When I revisited it, I made it actually he's in Moncton. So that adds that into the sort of canon, if you like. Um, I've also got a novel, a new standalone uh, sort of cosmic horror slash crime novel that's out on submission at the moment. Um, and that's set in the hills and mountains inland somewhere. Um, but I make a point of mentioning how they turn off west head inland after Endon. So again, I just sort of draw this little mention to it. Um, and now I'm writing a new book at the moment that's set in Moncton. Um, and these things are all, they're not directly connected. There won't be any... Um, sort of specific connections to things but there are sort of easter eggs for people who basically go oh I know where that is and oh that's that place and oh my god that guy lives in Moncton you know it, it just because I'm a nerd for that stuff I kind of yeah. I just I just like that easter egg stuff but it also gives me this fictional geography to play with so I've got Endon and Moncton are two sort of largish harbour towns Goldpepper's this small isolated harbour town you come inland and the hills rise up in towards mountains and you I've got these other places that I can play with um, and it's all this sort of fictional geography I can just throw stories into if I want to, which is why I'm also oh, sorry, slight tangent now, That's a love tangent. Uh, but which is why yeah. I'm also slightly concerned that just earlier this month, it was announced that, that I've got a new novel coming out with Cemetery Dance, which is a new um, standalone horror novel. Um, and that one is not set anywhere specific at all, but it's clearly kind of small town America, not small town Australia. Um, and so I'm really hoping that people don't sort of step up and go, oh, a new novel from, you know, this great Australian horror. Wait, this isn't Australia. To be honest, any Americans reading it might not even realise it's not Australia because no specific place is mentioned other than the fictional town itself. So I don't know. But we'll see. So it's interesting. Yeah, then, you know. I, was gonna say, I mean, I know you've set, um, set things in London and stuff before as well. And, you know, so there's whole... It's not like that. Yeah, Australia I mean, Hidden City, City is a fictional city in, in the west coast of America. Um, Devouring Dark is a London crime novel. Yep. So, yeah, I, I think just because so much of what I've written recently is very Australian that I hope yeah, people don't forget that I also write elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, so on, on that, just going back to, so you mentioned you're writing a new novel set in uh, Moncton. Is mm. that one that we can ask for a little bit of a picture or some details on, or is that still in the um, just working it out phase? Um, I can give I can give you a, a loose pitch of it. it. It basically it follows the story of 
uh, a father and son whose um, th their wife, mother was killed in a car accident and the father finds himself suddenly a single parent. Um, and they move from the city and he finds a job in the arse end of nowhere, basically, where he can, they basically sell their city apartment, which means they can buy a place and have money left over and he can take a part-time job, which makes him a more present sort of parent. Um, so this sort of horrible situation has led to them having to move and start again in this weird little country town miles from where they're used to, which happens to be Moncton. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have this little acre property just outside Moncton where they move to and dad's going to start a new part-time job. And 13-year-old son has to start new school in a country school and a weird, weird, strange nastiness begins to unfold. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Um, yeah. Well, fun from a reader's perspective, probably not. Yeah, not not so much fun for those guys. But it, this one's it's basically sort of a coming of age horror. Um, but yes, it's I'm still not entirely sure where I'm going. I've got I've got all the general shape of it, but I'm still not quite sure how it's going to pan out. So this is one of those ones where I've got all the setup and I'm not sure how it's going to end. Sometimes I know how something's going to end, and I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get there. Yeah, <laughs> this is the opposite. Understood. Understood. That, that's that's usually my point. I've got this great ending in mind. I'm like, oh yes, and then I just somehow need to work out how to get. Yeah. There. How do I get to that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the the other part that I wanted to talk about is um, it's it's one of those things where a lot of your novels have uh, been been shortlisted and won various awards. You know, there's Aurealis, there's Bram Stoker shortlistings, there's um, the Shadow Awards, which I think you've won roughly a bajillion of, um, or at least at least four. two, three I can see in the background there. There's three and one of the new ones. So that's oh, yes, is that the four? four of those. Oh, is that the, yes, I oh, know that. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, so the old the old Demon Heads that was the original, well not the original, but the the more recent one, and then uh, that artist was unable to carry on, so we commissioned a new artist, and this one, which is yeah. the the gravestone, is the new Shadows Award. Yeah. So that one's from the first time we used those. We, I've I'm not eligible to enter the shadows now currently because I'm president of the of the Australian Horror Writers Association, which means I can't obviously enter the awards run by that. That would be a big conflict <laughs> of interest. So the last couple of years I haven't been able to enter, but we're in the third year now with, with that trophy. So, yeah. Nice. I didn't realise it was third year in because um, it, it still feels like it's fairly new that it, it came about, but I guess it... Yeah, well, it was nearly two years before we finally managed to get a new truck because we kept trying to figure out how we could keep going with this one and it just didn't come together. And we, yeah. yeah, and so we ended up just deciding to commission a new one. And so those last year and the year before, those trophies all only went out at the end of last year. And now we're just, we've just announced a shortlist for the, for the third time around for those trophies. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Um, and that's something that I wanted to sort of, you know, try and segue into, which we've done nicely with the, um, the Australasian uh, Horror Writers Association. Mm. We've actually got a really strong, uh, I always find it surprising because um, it's not always something that you see, you know, you, you go to the horror section and you see Stephen King and you see all these big mm. names and that, but we've got a really strong um, community of horror writers here in Australia as well. And, and in New Zealand as well. Mm. Um, what is it that, I guess, what is it that makes that community so so strong? What what brings people into that community? Because it's, and I, I'm always know. astounded by the nicest people that I've met are you know, <laughs> horror writers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Horror. It was it was um, Karen Warren who is one of our greatest horror writers. Yeah, who said the nicest people in the world are horror writers, butchers, and plumbers because they all spend their life up to their necks in blood and guts and shit and subsequently get it all out of their system so by the time they're in polite company they're just they yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> they 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 live all that stuff every day so they can afford to be nice the rest of the time yeah. um australia and new zealand i don't know they both punch above their weight in terms really of really do, good yeah. horror writers and i think to some degree the isolation of where we are geographically globally does pull things together but equally my experience of the horror scene in the us is one of massive friendship and support as well. When I, I got out to StokerCon in Rhode Island, um, 2018 might have been, uh, and a few people who I knew online from chatting a little bit were just super friendly and treated me like one of their own. Um, Paul Tremblay went to university in Providence in Rhode Island mm -hmm. uh, and one afternoon just took me for a tour of all the Lovecraftian locations in 
Providence and we just hung out for the afternoon. He was showing me around and it was it was just lovely, you know, like for whatever reason in general. And I think this I think it's true across most genre fiction is that most genre communities are really friendly and supportive. Yeah. I think there's this perception that writing communities are all backstabbing and sniping and clickish and whatever, but I think that comes from the literary tradition. <laughs> My experience of genre writers is that they are seem to be universally friendly and supportive to each other. I mean, romance in particular in Australia, the romance genre and romance writers are just unbelievable. They're like a, just this huge family and, and horror is very similar. Um, and I think part of it comes from, I think part of it comes from everybody knowing the sort of struggle that we're all in. We're all up against the same barriers. We're all trying to make the same, uh, the same sort of inroads globally, as well as trying to get ourselves noticed and get our craft noticed and everything. Um, and there are always going to be those people who are sort of, who try to stand apart or who have jealousy issues or whatever. But for the, for the most part, the vast majority of people <clears throat> in all genre experience for me in the UK as well, actually. Um, they're just really supportive, friendly people who just want to help each other and see each other succeed. And I spend most of my time sitting in here making stuff up. So it's really nice to be able to reach out to other people who get it and occasionally spend time with other people who get it. It's, yeah. it's important. It's kind of good for us to remember that. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, romance in there as well, because that's a genre that for a long time has been sort of, uh, you know, not treated the nicest way. And it's actually led to romance being the leaders, you know, when ebooks came about, they were the one of the first ones about that when audio books and they've um, mm. kind of become industry leaders in a lot of the new. Oh, technology. they outsell all of us and always have. Yeah. And I think that's where some of the business comes from. I would, I would love the sales and fandom of some of the <laughs> yes. big romance uh, writers. My God, they've got, yeah, it's this, the passion of romance fans is, is huge. It's fantastic. Yeah. I always, um, yeah, because I'm not a huge romance reader, but it's incredibly informative, I find, reading different genres as well. And romance, there's there's no better teacher for teaching relationships in stories mm. than romance. And without relationships, it doesn't matter if you're writing fantasy, horror, or anything like that. Without relationships between characters, you don't have a story. And, and some, of the, some of the good romance, I mean, I'm the same. I don't read much romance. Um, it's probably when I say, you know, I never met a genre I didn't like. Probably genre-wise romance and erotica are the only things I don't tend to write or include in things and and largely don't tend to read um but from what I have read the people who do a good job of it they, they will often give you a master class in good dialogue um yeah. and in characters <clears throat> saying stuff without saying it out loud and in those sort of interactions um the good romance writers when it comes like you said you know when it comes to that sort of character interaction and that sort of stuff they some of them are just fantastic with what they do yeah. So, yeah, and I absolutely believe you read as widely as you possibly can because that's the best experience you can get to improve your craft. So Yeah, I think it was, um, uh, who was it? Uh, it was Isabel Carmody. I was at a, uh, a talk mm. with once uh, who was talking about using genre as a tool to tell a story, not to define it. And I think it was a really good uh, way to look at it is. Yeah, true. You understand the different genres and you read different genres. All you're doing is building your toolbox to uh, write the story you want to write. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, you need to read as widely as you possibly can in what you're writing so you kind of <clears throat> know where it's at and what's going on but absolutely the more widely you read the better informed you are and that goes beyond genre as well it includes non-fiction as well as you know literary fiction as well as anything you like I mean I've, one of, I've been reading which will surprise no one who's been um who's been following the gulp lately but I've been really you can see all my notes in this one yeah. I've been reading this one recently, which is absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, and I, I'm just going to read it out because it's, um, you know, only, only the audio is going to go out, but it's uh, Entangled oh, yes. Life, How Fungi, or Fungi, depending how you pronounce it, uh, Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. Yes, it's, it's a book all about um, the, the interconnectedness of, <clears throat> of fungus in our lives and the way it works. And you know, obviously, for anyone who's read The Gulp, you'll realise there's something of a fungus connection in part of it and that only expands through the course of the fall um and it's also it's in uh in was it uh devouring dark no sorry in hidden, hidden city, city was the fungus yeah, one as well city, so i'm starting to think there there might be a, a bit of a fungus uh an, a trend in your writing at the moment yeah and i've i've made the conscious thought that i after now after the fall I do need to move a little bit away from fungus because it's fascinating. Honestly, it is. It is absolutely astounding. It is. It's a sort of a pet subject where I'll get on a bit of a soapbox about things. 
but the way that fungus works and the way it's just intrinsic in every single aspect of life on the planet the way that it works it's just nuts it's crazy that Mer that merlin sheldrake book uh, what was it called entangled life um i highly recommend it as a read even if you're not particularly a fan of fungus because you will be by, <laughs> by the end of that book it's just amazing the way that it um the way that it is just in and out and a part of everything and i it was a part of how i developed the story in hidden city and it's very intrinsic to how things sort of occur through the stories in the gulp um and so it will always be an underlying theme in that area and in stories i tell there but um but yes after hidden city and 10 stories around the gulp i I am going to move a little bit. Of, I don't want to just end up being the fungus guy. <laughs> go from the, uh, the the kangaroo guy to the fungus guy. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And maybe the next story, I need a kangaroo made of fungus to attack something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah like Godzilla I, versus Kong type thing, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Roo versus kangaroos. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but it's fascinating. And there's that many different types of fungus and everything else that it's, uh, yeah, it, it just uh, it blows my mind. So. But yeah, I, I think I've I think I've exhausted to some degree that um, particular technique for the time being. I'm sure I'll revisit for now. For now. For now. I, I still hold in hope that there'll be uh, more mushroom stories later. Yeah, um, I'm sure there will. I can't stay away for long. I don't expect. But uh, look, I have to admit when. Um, when scheduling this one, I, I didn't expect the, the conversation to turn towards both romance and mushrooms. But very glad they did. Fantastic discussion. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, just sort of getting towards the the end of our time here, there's. The one question that I'd, I'd like to ask that Danny asks all, um, all the guests that come on, I love the answers. So I steal the question, um, you know, without, without shame. Um, but uh, I'm going to change it a little bit. So first, the question is, why do you write? But the other question I'd like to add on that is, why do you, we went, spoke a little bit before about what brings people to horror, mm. but why do you specifically write horror? What brought you to the point where you went, I'm going to disturb people. This is what I want to make my life to be. Um, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, Good answer. Yep. Yeah. Um, I write because I can't not write. I've always had stories that I feel that I need to tell. Um, when I was a teenager, I did a lot of role-playing games, played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and Warhammer fantasy role-play and stuff like that. And I would DM the games because it would be an excuse to just tell an ongoing story and get instant feedback from players, which is like, you know, instant feedback from readers. And they would say things and I'd be like, oh, what a cool idea. And I would change the story to follow around. And I, and I kind of exercised my storytelling um, urges through gaming for a long time. But then... In my mid-20s, I found myself in a bit of a rut. I was, I was working a real nine-to-five admin job that was purely paying enough money, although not really enough, um, for me to continue training so I could fight in the tournaments that I wanted to fight and carry on training and play in a band. And that's basically what I did, um, which was good up to a point, but I, found I, wasn't, I felt like I was <clears throat> sort of a bit stuck in a rut, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I went travelling for a couple of years. I basically... I walked the earth like Kanan Kung Fu with guitar and a backpack for a while. And while I was doing There's that, a movie I, in that, I'm sure. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> um, and while I was doing that, I was thinking, what do I want to do? Why, you know, I don't want to work these crappy nine to five admin jobs because they suck my soul away. Equally, I don't want to pursue a better nine to five job because that's not, so what do I want to do kind of thing? Um, and I realized then that, I actually, I've always written stories. I've always told stories. I had loads of stuff written down that I'd never done anything with. And one of the decisions I made while I was doing that traveling was, you know what? I am going to actively write for publication. I'm going to see if I can actually get good enough to get published. Um, and, and so that's what I did. And so then I started focusing in on the sort of stories I wanted to tell. And at the time, it was a lot of urban fantasy kind of stuff, magic and monsters and mythology and all that stuff, but set in our world. I've always been, Clive Barker's always been such a huge influence on me and my writing. Um, and so my first novels were Realm Shift and Mage Sign and then the Alex Kane series, um, that trilogy that got picked up by Harper Voyager. Um, and I didn't actually start out to be a horror writer. I was writing the stuff <clears throat> that I loved to explore and that I love to read, which was the, the fantasy and the weirdness and all that sort of stuff. 
And then I subsequently started getting called a horror writer because the stuff I was writing was always quite dark and it leaned a bit darker and and people started referring to because urban fantasy sometimes is a bit of a loaded term because people sometimes equate that with uh, paranormal romance. And so a lot of the time people started referring to what I was doing as urban horror. Um, And I was like, actually, I guess, you know what? I mean, some terrible things happen in the Alex Kane series. It's like, it's a dark urban fantasy, but there's some really brutal, grim, horrible things happen in that series. Um, And I just went, actually, you know what? Yeah, I I guess I am a horror writer. And I just kind of leaned into it a bit, really. And and it just seems to have, gone that way the further i go the the darker i go so yeah excellent and i've just switched on my uh my virtual background which is basically a photo of my bookshelf so we can see that there's if i can get my hand up there we are there's the uh the mage shift so mage side and realm shift one oh wow the original uh blade red editions because that that series that that duology got picked up by griffinwood press yeah um yeah so you've you've got the original editions there fantastic I, I and i notice you've also got a red is it is it a d30 or is it uh, no, D20? that's what's a D20 there. Um, it is a D20. Because yes, I've got a D30 that looks exactly like that, and I've never correct. met anyone else yet who's got one. And I was like, no way, has someone else got it? <laughs> it? It's been updated since this photo was taken. There's now a, uh, a white one and a um, and a red one that sit either side of a uh, pop vinyl tear mat. So, um, uh, well, you can't quite see, but just there, mm-hmm. you can just see sticking up on the edge of the shelf a little set of coloured yep. polygons. That's the original set of dice. I found it recently when I was tidying up some stuff. That's the first set of dice I ever had probably 40 years ago when I first started playing um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D, when I first started playing AD&D back in the the early 80s. (laughs) That was my first ever set of dice. A bit, bit of a tangent here, so I'll mm. apologise to uh, to listeners for that. But were they the ones where you actually had to get the stickers to put on the dice for the numbers? No, they were the ones where you had to get a crayon. So they were cards. Oh, wow. They had a little dent of the number and you would rub a crayon over it. So oh, that, that would give it the colour. Yeah, that would fill in the dent so you could see. Uh, you could sort of read them without it, but, um, yeah. They're, and they're all sort of chipped and battered now. So, but uh, yeah, that, I believe that, it when that. I found those, like the memories came flooding back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't have it here, but I've um, so I make my own dice, and uh, I made a dice oh, bag cool. for them um, recently, and it's like a, an eight-sectioned one, uh, and it, it's yeah, I, I love it. I'll, any chance to show it off, I'll I'll grab it out, but uh, probably you, not the you place. Cast in for resin, it. do you? Yeah, yeah, do um, the resin casting. So I've got um, uh, some that I've got a, a set of open molds uh, for normal size, and I've got some uh, they call them chunk dice as well, the uh, the extra big ones. Oh, fantastic! Uh, How cool! And and the best thing is that. Uh, one of one of my kids, the the youngest uh, here, he absolutely loves them. So anything that I don't get right or I sort of you know mess up, he's more than happy just to collect them himself. And he runs around around the house with uh, his own bag, going, "I'm a dice goblin. Look at me!" I'm like, yeah, <laughs> dice goblin. So proud. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but on that note, look, I think um, we should probably uh, leave it there before because mm. I, th- I think if we go into D and D, that's a whole another podcast on that one. Um, oh, yeah, but. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on uh, on the regular. Uh, thank you for um, for all the books that you've put into the world. I've certainly enjoyed them, uh, and I hope our listeners do as, as well. Okay. So this episode will probably come out shortly after uh, the fall has been released. But can you just give uh, readers, so listeners, I should say, uh, hopefully soon to be readers, a mm-hmm. um, a quick reminder of the release date, um, just in case we go out a little bit earlier. Absolutely. Um... Will you go out before April 5th or so? No. Okay. Unlikely. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll give you a slight exclusive as long as you promise that it won't go out before then. Uh, we can um, embargo this until then. That's fine. Yep. Cool. So the gulp is out now. Um, yep. The release date for the fall is April 12th. April. Um, and the pre-orders are up now, all the usual sort of places you might find that. There is also going to be a limited edition hardcover omnibus of both books in a single volume, um, which is not announced yet yeah. um, as we record, but hopefully will have been announced um, by the time this goes to air. And listeners, as a side note, it has been released. It looks brilliant and I highly recommend it to anyone who's a fan of Alan Baxter's work. I'll make sure that whatever happens i will physically see the announcement on uh you know facebook on twitter yeah. or insta wherever it is um it'll go everywhere i think it'll be it'll be pretty loud when it comes out it's a pretty cool deal um so but it's a very limited edition so i don't even know how i 
they seem to think it might sell out quick, but I don't know because it's going to be very expensive. But I don't know. It's all a bit of a surprise to me. So, yeah. As long as it's after payday, I'll be happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so basically, the, yes, the, the bottom line is the golf is out now. The fall is April 12th. Um, April 12th. Pre-orders are live. So you can order now and it'll drop on April 12th. Yeah. And or if for, this is too early for that, but I was going to say if anyone uh, listening, you can get an early copy by ordering a signed paperback straight from me because I've got a few copies early. But uh, this will be after release date anyway, so that doesn't matter. I'll leave it there. Again, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, yep, for all our listeners, uh, I highly recommend you go get the gulp. I highly recommend you don't read it at night. Um, <laughs> or like I may have done at work where people can look over your shoulder and read it and then start looking at you funny. Um, what is but, wrong uh, with you, man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that uh, the people that I work with are already aware that I'm slightly uh, off normal. But um, that's all good. We have a good time there. Uh, I'll leave you to it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. And thank you listeners for sticking around and listening to this conversation between myself and Alan Baxter. And uh, especially those who stuck around during the uh, random D&D tangent. Um, look, if you, if you like this episode, you can find more available at either NathanJPhillipsWrites.com or at WordsAndNerds.com where you can also find the original Words and Nerds podcast with Danny V and the, the many spin-offs that have uh, spawned into that Words and Nerds universe. Again, thank you very much for uh, joining in. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, join us next month as well as we interview uh, a very interesting guest and one that's a good friend of mine as well. Thank you very much. Bye.